Hey guys and welcome back. My name is Liz and I'll be your host on this gruesome journey through lore, legends, and the scariest thing of all, laundry. If you tuned into our Halloween episode, you might have heard my excitement when I noticed that more things were afoot during the 1893 Chicago World's Fair than 14 square foot beer factory sculptures and alcoholic gnomes. During this time, visitors to the World's Fair were traveling from far and wide to see what exciting exhibits the fair had to offer and see what the future would hold for them. Just to list some of the items or inventions, Cracker Jacks and Jemima Pancake Mix, the zipper, the Ferris wheel, Wrigley's chewing gum, the automatic dishwasher, spray paint, electricity by General Electric, aka Thomas Edison and J.P. Morgan with the DC current, and their rivals Tesla and Westinghouse with the AC current, the moving sidewalk, the hamburger, and as we covered in our special Paps Blue Ribbon Beer. Some of those visitors would have sought lodging in or around the city if they were from out of town. Some of those guests would get to experience some inventions of a more deadly kind. You see, Herman Webster Mudgett, also known as Dr. Henry Howard Holmes, or H.H. Holmes, was a con artist and serial killer who was the subject of more than 50 lawsuits. Until his execution in 1896, he pursued a criminal career that included insurance fraud, swindling, check forgery, three to four bigamist illegal marriages, and horse theft. Like, murder wasn't bad enough, right? But all is not what it seems. Let's start at the beginning. If you haven't done so already, grab those baskets, grab a drink or a snack, get comfy, and let's get to the bottom of all that laundry as we get to the bottom of the legend of H.H. Holmes and the murder castle. Much of the legend surrounding the murder castle, as well as many of his alleged crimes, are thought to be exaggerated or fabricated for sensationalistic tabloid articles. Many of these factual inaccuracies have persisted as a result of ineffective police investigation in hyperbolic tabloid journalism, which is frequently cited as historical record. Holmes gave plenty of contradictory accounts of his life, claiming innocence at first and later being possessed by Satan. We will get to the spooky stuff later, I promise. His proclivity for lying has made it difficult for researchers like myself to determine the truth from his statements. Since the 1900s, Holmes has been described as a serial killer. However, as Adam Seltzer points out in his book on Holmes, this is just not the case. Just killing several people isn't necessarily enough for most definitions of a serial killer. More often, it has to be a series of similar crimes committed over a period of time, usually more to satisfy a psychological urge on the killer's part than any more practical motive. And the murders we can connect him to generally had a clear motive. Someone knew too much or was getting in his way and couldn't be trusted. The murders weren't simply for love of bloodshed, but a necessary part of the furthering his swindling operations and protecting his lifestyle. So what's the real story behind Mr. or should I say Dr. H.H. Holmes? Just to clear this up now because I've been asked this before, there is absolutely no relation between us. Holmes was an alias Mudgett had picked for himself. On May 16th, 
1861, Holmes was born Herman Webster Mudgett in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, to Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodate Page Price both of whom were descended from the area's first English immigrants. Mudgett was the third child of his parents with an older sister, Ellen, and older brother, Arthur, and then younger brother, Henry, and a younger sister, Mary. Holman's father came from a farming family and worked as a farmer, trader, and house painter at various times. Both his parents were devout Methodists. Later attempts to fit Holmes into patterns seen in modern serial killers described him torturing animals and suffering abuse at the hands of a violent father, but contemporary and eyewitness accounts of his childhood do not provide any evidence of this. Holmes graduated from Phillips Exeter Academy at the age of 16 and began teaching in Gilmanton and later in nearby Alton. He married Clara Levering in Alton on July 4th, 1878 and their son Robert Levering Mudgett was born on February 3rd, 1880 in Loudoun, New Hampshire. Later in life, Robert worked as the city manager of Orlando, Florida, and became a certified public accountant. Sounds like a pretty normal life if you ask me. Get married, have a kid. I mean, if you want kids, it's not for everyone, but if you do have a kid and that kid grows up to be a good and successful person, who could complain? But as we all know, this isn't the end of the story, nor will it be a happy one. Holmes enrolled at the University of Vermont in Burlington at the age of 18, but dropped out after one year. He enrolled in the Department of Medicine and Surgery at the University of Michigan in 1882 and graduated in June 1884 after passing his exams. He worked in the anatomy lab under Professor William James Herdman, then the chief anatomy instructor while enrolled, and the two were said to be involved in facilitating grave robbing to supply medical cadavers. They would actually make up a new identity and convince someone to fake their death, then use a mutilated cadaver. They would disfigure the faces to the point where they were unrecognizable, and then pass them off as fresh corpses. He and his accomplice would sometimes make upwards of $10,000. Holmes had trained in New Hampshire under Nam White, a well-known proponent of human dissection. Years later, when Holmes was being investigated for murder while claiming to be nothing more than an insurance fraudster, he admitted to using cadavers to defraud life insurance companies several times in college. I'm sitting here wondering how in the hell these guys got away with this, but then I have to remind myself that this is the 1800s. DNA and forensics were non-existent in those days. Also, I guess you could just take out a life insurance policy on any person you wanted and get paid if something happened to them. After doing a bit of research real quick, it looks like you can still do this as long as there is some kind of relationship between the two of you, such as a business partnership. Now, before you go out and start taking life insurance policies on anyone, you have to have financial stake in their life and the person being insured has to have given consent to this. I'm just going to say it. I don't condone this and I strongly advise against it if you are now considering it. This is not a how-to on shop shops, okay? Glad we got that covered. But seriously, I wonder how many people got rich doing this back in the early years of America. Housemates described Holmes being extremely violent towards Clara, causing her to move back to New Hampshire in 1884 before his graduation. She would later write that she knew little of him after that. After relocating to Moore's Forks, New York, a rumor circulated that Holmes had been seen with a young boy who later vanished. According to Holmes, the boy returned to his home in Massachusetts. There was no investigation, and Holmes quickly left town. Oh, for fuck's sake. The more I learn about life in the early 17 to 1900s, parents would just let their kids go anywhere with anyone. I often wonder how I survived the world when I was a child. And now I understand why we have helicopter parents. Yes, 
I am one of those parents. Why would you let your kid go with a complete stranger? Also, why didn't you go looking for your child? Sir, ma'am, this is not okay. He later moved to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and worked as a keeper at Norristown State Hospital for a few days before quitting. I'm assuming because someone saw him doing shady shit again or couldn't acquire an accomplice. He later worked at a drugstore in Philadelphia, but while he was there, a boy died after taking medication purchased at the store. See? More shady shit. Holmes denied any involvement in the death of the child and immediately fled the city. Again, shady shit. He changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes just before moving to Chicago to avoid being exposed by victims of his previous scams. You see, while he was traveling throughout New York, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, he was still running several insurance scams and committing other crimes that made him quite the target for the authorities in those states. In his post-arrest confession, Holmes claimed he murdered his former medical school classmate, Robert Leacock, in 1886 for insurance money. Leacock, on the other hand, died on October 5th, 1889 in Waterford, Ontario, Canada. While still married to Clara, Holmes married Murda Belknap in Minneapolis, Minnesota in late 1886. He filed for divorce from Clara a few weeks after marrying Murda, accusing her of infidelity. This dude. I swear. The claims could not be proven and the lawsuit was dismissed. Surviving paperwork indicated that she was most likely never even aware of the suit. In any case, the divorce was never finalized. On June 4th, 1891, it was dismissed for want of prosecution. Basically, the case was dismissed by the judge because nothing happened in the case for a while or someone missed the hearing or the trial. We already know that Clara didn't know about it, so it had to be Holmes who didn't show up for the very trial he had requested to have. Holmes and Murda had a daughter, Lucy Theodate Holmes, on July 4th, 1889 in Inglewood, Chicago, Illinois. Later in life, Lucy went on to teach in a public school. I'm really surprised. Another good and successful child. I am shocked. Holmes lived in Wilmot, Illinois with Murda and Lucy and spent most of his time in Chicago taking care of business. On January 17, 1894, in Denver, Colorado, Holmes married Georgiana Yoke while still married to both Clara and Murda. I'm having a really hard time understanding how these women stayed with this man and what exactly attracted them to him. I'm assuming that none of these women knew about each other, nor did the children know about each other either. But yet again, although these sound like happy endings and maybe that's what he was looking for, this tale will only end in disappointment. As we have learned already, in August 1886, Holmes arrived in Chicago and began using the name A.J.H. Holmes. In Inglewood, he came across Elizabeth S. Holton's drugstore on the northwest corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street. Holton hired Holmes and he proved to be a hard worker, eventually purchasing the store. Although several books depict Holton's husband as an elderly man who vanished along with his wife, Dr. Holton was a fellow Michigan alumnus, only a few years Holmes senior, and both Holtons remained in Inglewood throughout Holmes' life and survived well into the 20th century. It is a myth that they were murdered by Holmes. Similarly, Holmes did not murder alleged castle victim, Miss Kate Durkee, who is discovered to be very much alive. I'm not sure if this makes him less of a bad guy because he didn't kill everybody he came in contact with, but I still think he's a pretty evil person. Holmes bought an empty lot across from the drugstore and construction on a two-story mixed-use building with apartments on the second floor and retail spaces, including a new drugstore, began in 1887. In 1888, the architects in the steep company Edna Iron and Steel sued Holmes because he refused to pay them. 
Mind you, he was never actually prosecuted for this because like so many other situations in his life, he scammed the contractors by using various different names. It was a common occurrence for him to hire a new company every few weeks using those different names because he wouldn't pay them. On April 17, 1891, a creditor of Holmes named John DeBrol died of apoplexy in the drugstore. Basically, he was bleeding into an organ or had lost blood flow to a vital organ, which led to him dying. Holmes then added a third floor in 1892, telling investors and suppliers that he planned to use it as a hotel during the upcoming World's Columbian Exposition, aka the Chicago World's Fair, though the hotel portion was never finished. The hotel was partially finished in 1892 with three stories and a basement, with the storefront being located on the ground floor. Remember how I said that Holmes had sold the previous drugstore? Well, when he sold that drugstore, the new owner knew that Holmes was building a property across the street. It is said that the new owner only purchased the drugstore under the agreement that Holmes would not open another drugstore in the new building. Holmes agreed to the terms, but that was a lie. He totally opened another drugstore in his new building, eventually leading the other drugstore to go out of business. Totally a dick move, if you ask me. Many workers flocked to Chicago in the late 1880s to help prepare the city for the World's Fair, a six-month cultural and social event involving over 40 different nations. Over 27 million people had attended by the fair's final day on October 30th, 1893, making it an ideal location for hotel business. According to fictional accounts, Holmes built the hotel to entice tourists visiting the nearby World's Fair in order to murder them and sell their skeletons to medical schools. There is no evidence that Holmes ever attempted to lure strangers into his hotel with the intent of murdering them. In reality, none of his potential victims were strangers. Holmes was known to have sold cadavers to medical schools in the past, but he obtained his goods through grave robbing rather than murder. I mean, I guess that's a little better. Can you imagine being a medical student in the area and having just buried Grandma Margaret only days or maybe a week ago? Then one day you walk into the medical theater to find Grandma Margaret on the autopsy table ready for today's lesson. That had to have happened to someone at least once, maybe twice. The Yellow Press dubbed the structure Holmes Murder Castle, claiming it housed secret torture chambers, trapdoors, gas chambers, and a basement crematorium. But there are conflicting reports on if this were true or something concocted to sell newspapers. According to another account, the hotel had over 100 rooms and was laid out like a maze, with doors opening into brick walls, windowless rooms, and dead-end staircases. Sounds like Holmes and Sarah Winchester would have been great friends when it came to building ridiculous structures. We may have more about her later. Yes, I'm winking again. Anyway, in reality, the hotel floor was average in size and unremarkable. It did have some hidden rooms, but they were used to conceal furniture that Holmes had purchased on credit and did not intend to pay for. But that didn't stop the rumors from spreading about how Holmes would strike up a conversation with shoppers at the drugstore and point them in the direction of the hotel, his hotel, where they would later rent a room for the night. The guests would be provided with a room on the third floor where the walls were soundproof and had hidden pipes connecting each of the rooms to another secret room nearby. It is then said that Holmes would return in the dead of night, lock the guests in their rooms, and then enter the secret room with the pipes and turn on the gas. This would lead to the rooms filling with poisonous gas that would kill his guests. Then, once he was sure they were no longer a part of the living world, he would rob them of their possessions, 
dropped their bodies down a chute that went all the way to the basement, and then using his years of anatomy education, would strip the body of everything so that he could sell the skeletons. Everyone loves a good rumor, and the dude was already known for selling skeletons, so I can see why these kinds of rumors were floating around. The hotel was destroyed by a fire started by an unknown arsonist shortly after Holmes was arrested, but it was rebuilt and used as a post office until 1938. Aside from his infamous murder castle, Holmes also claimed to have a one-story factory for glass bending. It is unknown whether the factory furnace was ever used for glass bending. It was speculated that it was used to destroy evidence of Holmes's crimes, like the removed bits from the bodies. Julia Smith, Holmes' mistress. This dude really can't keep it in his pants, can he? What is this? Wife, girlfriend, number four? It's getting harder and harder to keep track of his escapades. So, back to Julia. She was one of Holmes' earlier victims. She was Ned Connor's wife who had moved into Holmes' building and started working at his pharmacy's jewelry counter. Connor quit his job and moved away after learning of Smith's affair with Holmes, leaving Smith and her daughter Pearl behind. Smith took custody of Pearl and stayed at the hotel, where she continued her relationship with Holmes. Julia and Pearl vanished on Christmas Eve 1891, and Holmes later claimed she died as a result of an abortion. Despite his medical background, Holmes was unlikely to have prior experience performing abortions, and the mortality rate for such a procedure was high at the time. Holmes claimed to have poisoned Pearl in order to conceal her mother's death. When excavating Holmes' cellar, a partial skeleton, possibly of a child around Pearl's age, was discovered. Pearl's father, Ned, testified at Holmes' trial in Chicago. Emmeline Sigrande started working in the building in May 1892 and vanished in December of 1892. Following her disappearance, rumors circulated that she had become pregnant by Holmes. Seriously? Dude. Come on. Her death was possibly a result of yet another failed abortion that Holmes attempted to conceal. Emily Van Tassel, a young girl who worked for Holmes in his building, also, quote unquote, vanished under suspicious circumstances. While working in the Chemical Bank building on Dearborn Street, Holmes met and became close friends with Benjamin Peitzel, a carpenter with a criminal past who was displaying a coal bin that he had invented in the same building. Peitzel served as Holmes' right-hand man in several criminal schemes. Peitzel was later described as Holmes' tool, his creature, by a district attorney. Minnie Williams, a former actress, moved to Chicago in early 1893. Holmes claimed to have met her in an employment office, though there were rumors that he had met her years before in Boston. He offered her a job as his personal stenographer at the hotel, which she accepted. Accepted. Holmes persuaded Williams to give the deed to her Fort Worth, Texas property to a man named Alexander Bond, an alias of Holmes. Williams transferred the deed in April 1893, with Holmes acting as the notary. Holmes later signed the deed over to Peitzel, giving him the alias Benton T. Lyman. The following month, Holmes and Williams rented an apartment in Chicago's Lincoln Park, posing as husband and wife. Minnie's sister, Annie, came to visit, and in July, she wrote to her aunt that she was going to Europe with quote-unquote Brother Harry. Minnie and Annie were never seen alive after July 5th, 1893. Am I the only one noticing this dude has some weird coincidences with the month of July? Although it was never proven, Holmes was suspected of murdering six other people who went missing between 1891 and 1895. Dr. Rustler, who worked in the castle, went missing in 1892. Also in 1892, Kitty Kelly, a stenographer for Holmes, 
also went missing. John G. Davis of Greenville, Pennsylvania, went to the World's Fair in 1893 and then vanished. His daughter requested that he be declared legally dead in 1920. Henry Walker of Greensburg, Indiana, who went missing in November 1893, was accused of insuring his life for $20,000 with Holmes and writing to friends that he was working with Holmes in Chicago. Milford Cole of Baltimore, Maryland, is said to have vanished after receiving a telegram from Holmes directing him to come to Chicago in July of 1894. Lucy Burbank, an otherwise unknown victim, had her bank book discovered in the castle in 1895. With insurance companies pressuring him to be charged with arson, Holmes fled Chicago in July 1894. He reappeared in Fort Worth, where he had inherited property from the Williams sisters through the intersection of Commerce and 2nd Street. He attempted to construct an incomplete structure without paying his suppliers and contractors. There were no more killings at this location. In July 1894, again with July, Holmes was arrested and briefly imprisoned for the first time in St. Louis, Missouri on the charge of selling mortgaged goods. Basically, selling things that he got with credit and hadn't paid off. He was quickly bailed out, but while in jail, he struck up a conversation with Marion Hedgepeth, a convicted outlaw serving a 25-year sentence. Holmes devised a scheme to defraud an insurance company out of $10,000 by purchasing a policy on himself and then faking his death. Cheese and crackers. This man's depravity knows no bounds. Holmes offered Hedgepeth a $500 commission in exchange for the name of a trustworthy lawyer. Holmes was directed to Jup the Howe, a young St. Louis attorney. Howe thought Holmes' plan to fake his own death fell through when the insurance company became suspicious and refused to pay. Instead of pressing the claim, Holmes devised a similar scheme with Peitzel because he just doesn't know when to quit. Peitzel agreed to fake his own death in order for his wife to collect on a $10,000 life insurance policy, which she was to split with Holmes and Howe. Peitzel was to set himself up as an inventor under the name B.F. Perry in the scheme which was to take place in Philadelphia. Perry, only to be killed and made unrecognizable in a lab explosion. Holmes was supposed to find a suitable cadaver to play Peitzel. Instead, Holmes murdered Peitzel by knocking him out with chloroform and setting fire to his body with benzene. Holmes implied in his confession that Peitzel was still alive after he used the chloroform on him before setting him on fire. Again, a dick move on his part, especially with this being one of his close friends. Wow, Henry. Just wow. As if that wasn't the worst part, the insurance payout was collected by Holmes on the basis of the genuine Peitzel corpse. Holmes then tricked Peitzel's unsuspecting wife into giving him custody of three of her five children, Alice, Nellie, and Howard. Again, with people just handing off their kids to random strangers, Miss Peitzel kept the eldest daughter and the baby. Holmes and the three Peitzel children traveled across Northern America and into Canada. Simultaneously, he escorted Miss Peitzel along a parallel route, all the while using various aliases and lying to her about her husband's death, claiming Peitzel was hiding in London and the true whereabouts of her three missing children. They were only a few blocks apart in Detroit just before crossing into Canada. In an even more audacious move, Holmes was staying at a different location with his wife, who was completely unaware of the entire situation. Holmes later admitted to forcing Alice and Nellie into a large trunk and locking them inside. He drilled a hole in the trunk lid and threaded one end of a hose through it, connecting the other end to a gas line to asphyxiate the girls. Holmes buried 
buried their naked bodies in the cellar of his Toronto rental house at 16 St. Vincent Street. St. Vincent Street has long since been realigned into a section of Bay Street, so this house and address no longer exists. The decomposed bodies of the two Peitzel girls were discovered in the cellar of the Toronto home by Frank Geyer, a Philadelphia police detective assigned to investigate homes and find the three missing children. The deeper we dug, the more horrible the odor became, and when we reached the depth of three feet, we discovered what appeared to be the bone of a human being's forearm, Detective Gare wrote. Gare then went to Indianapolis, where Holmes had rented a cottage. Holmes was said to have gone to a local pharmacy to get the drugs used to kill young Howard Peitzel, as well as a repair shop to sharpen the knives used to chop up the body before burning it. The boy's teeth and bone fragments were discovered in the chimney of the cottage. Being a mom, this pains me. I physically feel pain hearing about the atrocities he inflicted on those poor children in Pearl and Chicago. They didn't deserve that. But I do have some good news. On November 17th, 1894, Holmes was apprehended in Boston after being tracked there from Philadelphia by the private Pinkerton National Detective Agency. Let me tell you, these guys had been around for a while and were so good at what they do that they're actually still around to this day. Just a little fun fact there for you. So Holmes was being held on an outstanding warrant for horse theft in Texas because authorities had grown suspicious and he appeared to be planning to flee the country with his unsuspecting third wife. Following the discovery of Alice and Nellie's bodies in July 1895, again with July, this has got to be more than a mere coincidence. Anyway, the Chicago police and reporters began investigating Holmes' building in Inglewood, now known locally as the castle. Despite many sensational claims, no evidence that could have led to Holmes's conviction in Chicago was discovered. Torture equipment found in the building, according to Selzer, is 20th century fiction. In October 1895, Holmes was found guilty and sentenced to death for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel. Holmes had clearly murdered the three Peitzel children by this point. Following his conviction, Holmes confessed to 27 murders and six attempted murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto, though some of those he confessed to murdering were still very much alive. The Hearst newspapers paid Holmes $7,500 in exchange for his confession, which was quickly discovered to be mostly nonsense. This man always looking to make a buck. While writing his confession in prison, Holmes mentioned how his facial appearance had changed dramatically since his confinement. More than likely a last-ditch con to try to get out of prison. You know, you've got the wrong guy kind of vibe here. Holmes was hanged on May 7th, 1896 at Moya Mincing Prison, also known as the Philadelphia County Prison, for the murder of Peitzel. Holmes remained calm and pleasant until his death, displaying few signs of fear, anxiety, or depression. Despite this, he requested that his coffin be encased in cement and buried 10 feet deep because he was concerned that grave robbers would steal his body and dissect it. Holmes' neck did not break. Instead, he slowly strangled to death, twitching for more than 15 minutes before being pronounced dead 20 minutes after the trap was set. I call this karma. Holmes' body was interred in an unmarked grave at Holy Cross Cemetery, a Catholic cemetery in the Philadelphia western suburb of Yadin, Pennsylvania, following his execution. Hedgepeth, who had been pardoned for informing on Holmes, was shot and killed by police officer Edward Jaburik during a holdup at a Chicago saloon on New Year's Eve, 1909. The Chicago Tribune reported on March 7, 1914, that with the death of Patrick Quinlan, the former caretaker of Holmes Castle, the mysteries of Holmes Castle would remain unsolved. Quinlan had killed himself with strychnine, 
commonly used pesticide used for killing rats. His body was discovered in his bedroom with the note, I couldn't sleep. I don't know about you, but I probably would have tried a warm glass of milk or some kind of sleep aid before resorting to fucking rat poison. That just seems a bit extreme, you know? So Quinlan's surviving relatives claimed he had been haunted and suffering from hallucinations for several months. As we learned earlier in August 1895, the castle was mysteriously destroyed by fire. According to a New York Times newspaper clipping, two men were seen entering the back of the building between 8 and 9 p.m. They were last seen exiting the building and running away about 30 minutes later. The castle caught fire after several explosions. Following that, investigators discovered a half-empty gas can beneath the building's back steps. The structure survived the fire and was used until 1938 when it was demolished. United States Postal Service's Englewood branch now occupies the space. Karma struck again and Holmes' one fear came true because in 2017, amid claims that Holmes had evaded execution, his body was exhumed for testing by Janet Monge of the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology. Because his coffin was sealed in cement, his body did not decompose normally. His clothes were nearly perfect and his mustache was discovered to be intact. His teeth positively identified the body as that of Holmes. After that, Holmes was reburied. Our story doesn't end there. You see, the Inglewood Post Office might not sit perfectly on the footprint of the old Holmes Castle, but the castle would have encompassed the eastern part of the present-day post office and the vacant lot that sits between the post office and the nearby freight train embankment. Maintenance workers report strange sightings and intense anxiety while working in the post office basement where the majority of the murders occurred. The only other mention of Holmes being tied to a haunting was an episode of a widely popular paranormal show that did an investigation at the cottage where the Peitzel boy was murdered. The owner stated that he believed dark and sinister forces had overtaken the property. That's it. You would think with that much murder, there would have been a lot more restless spirits roaming about. But for the children's sake, I'm glad they haven't been seen. Well, friends... It's that time again. I want to thank all of you for listening. And if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, I ask you to please like, subscribe, or leave us a written review. We absolutely love hearing from all of you. We can be found on all major podcasting hosts, but if there's one that you prefer and we are not hosted on there, let us know. Just send us an email to lorelegendslaundry at gmail.com and we will put it on there. We are officially on Facebook and can find us by typing in facebook.com forward slash lorelegendslaundry. You can also do the same for Instagram by going to instagram.com forward slash lorelegendslaundry. As these are the sites that we share pictures of our locations and interact with all of you throughout the week. Until next time. Bye guys. And... Don't forget to switch the laundry.